Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and he comes home and he calls his neighbors and friends together and saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not go, light a lamp, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. We'll just jump right in. Uh, In the Gospels, when someone asks Jesus a question or accuses him of some wrongdoing, he typically responds to them, but instead of directly answering them, quite often he'll ask his audience to lean in so he can tell them a story. And that's exactly what led to the telling of this parable in Luke 15. Listen again to verses 1 and 2 that Julie just read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. That was a serious accusation from the religious leaders of the day. This man eats, I was going to say eats sinners, that would be different, wouldn't it? (laughs) Not cannibalism. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And I imagine a little Pharisee gossip circle. And they usually stand like this. They lean back and they have a robe or jacket. They do this. I don't know why, but that's what a Pharisee looks like. (laughs) Doesn't he know how unholy these people are? Uh, Doesn't he care about purity like we do? Someone else chimes in. He not only doesn't avoid sinners, they actually seem to be attracted to him. How can he associate with them? He must not be teaching the truth. After all, they seem happy. With all these sinners gathered around him and the religious leaders listening in, Jesus tells his attentive audience a story. And for all those who thought it was bad enough that he's eating with sinners, by the time he's done with this story, their heads are going to explode because it's much worse than they think. You've already heard the first part of Luke 15. Uh, Now start in verse 11 with me and we'll read through the end. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and so celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered the father, look, these many years I've served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a really dramatic uh, story. The drama unfolds in two acts. Uh, Act one, the father and the younger son. Act two, the father and the older son. In your bulletin, there's an outline, and on the back side of the outline, there's a picture of Rembrandt's painting of this scene, the return of the prodigal son. So you can see there, the younger son is kneeling before the father, missing the sole of one of his shoes. And the older son is that that very austere figure to the right, just kind of gazing with the same color robe as the father. We usually think about the parable, the prodigal son, singular, right? And that's the heading in many of our Bibles too, right before verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. But this is a parable about prodigal sons, two sons, two prodigals here. We'll start with the first, the better-known prodigal, the one pictured kneeling before the father in that painting, and eventually we'll get to his older brother. First, the younger son. He's usually the one we have in mind when we hear prodigal son. If someone says, hey, how's, how's, your, how's your brother doing? How's your kid doing, your son? Well, he's, he's prodigal right now. We don't mean the older brother to the right. We mean that younger brother. They've lived a certain kind of lifestyle. They've made shipwreck of their lives. They're making bad decisions. We usually think of that son, so we'll start with him in this first act. Uh, but first, a few words about the setting. It's helpful for us to know uh, what's, what's going on here, what it's like to be in their day. From what we can tell, uh, the father appears to be a farmer. And because farmland was so scarce in their day, farmers and their families lived in compact villages so they wouldn't take up land living where they could be planting. So that makes sense, right? So think small village, multi-level housing, everyone knows your business. Uh, This story wouldn't have happened in a corner or behind closed doors. There's an entire community involved in this interaction between the father and his son. And as we track the younger son, we see his life move through various stages. It's rebellion is first, exile, and then following that, peace. Rebellion, exile, peace. We start with rebellion. Verse 12, right away. Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. 
I don't know how this request hits you. After all, uh, we all have various backgrounds, different family dynamics. What's appropriate in your family might not be in mine. But if you're part of Jesus' culture, what you just heard the son say to his father is pretty shocking. Uh, Kenneth Bailey was an author and lecturer in Middle Eastern New Testament studies, and he lived in the Middle East for, for years and years. He wrote, for over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. And the answer has always been the same. He said the conversation goes like this. He'll say, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. Well, what if someone did make this request? The father would beat him, of course. Why? Because the request means he wants his father to be dead. See, the inheritance was divided between the heirs after the father was dead, not while he's living and breathing. It would have seemed totally appropriate for the father to backhand his son in this story. That's what the audience is expecting. He showed great dishonor to his dad. That's what the father was expected to do. But Jesus likes to keep things interesting. And so the father does what no one expected him to do. He granted his son's request. We read in verse 12, he divided his property between them. Uh, an interesting note uh, is that the Greek word for property here in verse 12 is bios, where we get the word biology. It means life. And in a way that perhaps farmers today understand, but most of us don't, the people in Jesus' day were tied to their land, connected to their land. To lose part of your land was to lose part of yourself, much of your standing in the community. And so this younger son is asking the father then to tear his life apart, to divide his property and grant his request. And he does. The younger son typically got a third of the inheritance, the older son two-thirds. The father here appears to have vast resources as we read the story. He's got servants, he's got herds of livestock, he's got the means to throw a pretty great party. So we're talking about a sizable inheritance uh, for even a third of the family's estate. The, the request the son made to get his hands on the inheritance now was over the top, but what's even more over the top is that the father granted his request. This father is highly unusual. He's not ordinary at all. Remember the shepherd in search for the sheep in verses 3 to 7 we heard read? And the woman in search for the coin in verses 8 to 10? They did nothing out of the ordinary. They did what they were expected. They did what we would do. But the father here, he does what's totally unexpected. The son gets his inheritance he uh, literally, it says, he turned it to cash, so he liquidated his assets. He got out of Dodge. He's not leaving town because he couldn't wait to get to whatever first century Vegas was, although that might have been part of it. But he is in a hurry to get out because of the shame that is now resting on his family. Imagine generations of generations of the family estate being passed down from father to son to their son 
to their son. And his portion of that great inheritance, that legacy, has been reduced to a cashier's check that he folds up and puts in his pocket as he bends down to tie the shoes that his dad bought him and get out of town, head off on his adventure, whatever he has planned. He's not thinking about anybody but himself, is he? His actions brought shame on his family, his father, his brother, but also to the whole community. This was a very serious thing in their culture. They didn't brush things under the carpet. His family would be treated differently now. Not that he'd be there to endure any of that. Unlike our day when others would probably just gossip about something like this, but that's about it. The entire town is now involved in dealing with this shameful son. Something was wrong, and they would all play a part in putting it right. The Jews had a method of punishing any Jewish boy who lost his family inheritance to Gentiles. And to discourage any thought of someone doing exactly what we read about, the community developed what was called the kazaza, or cutting off ceremony. If you lost your inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to come home, that's what you'd be coming home to. Kazaza. It's kind of a fun word to say. Why don't we all say it together? Kazaza. Fellow villagers would fill a large earthenware pot with burned nuts and corn, and they would break it in front of the guilty person. And while doing this, that foul stench of, of burned corn and nuts, and with all that would fill the air. It was, it was putrid. It was disgusting. They would shout, so-and-so is cut off from his people. So, for instance, Simon, son of James, is cut off from his people. And that was it. They were cut off from their people. From that moment on, the villagers would have nothing to do with the miserable young man. You'd be dead to them. Your future's gone too. You needed community to make your way in the world. As the young son leaves town, he knows, I must not lose my inheritance among the Gentiles. But as we know, we've read it, he does. That's important to keep in mind when he later considers his return. There's a kazaza waiting for him, a shameful cutting off. The young man knows this. That never left his mind. It never left his father's mind. That's the first stage, rebellion. And his rebellion toward his father led to this second stage for him, exile. Verse 13 says, and he gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. This far country is Gentile territory. We know that because through a series of unfortunate events, the prodigal ends up working as a pig herder for one of the residents of the country. And no self-respecting Jew or Jewish town would have that kind of occupation. Pigs were considered unclean. But this young man, he's desperate. Verses 13 to 15, we see he burned through all his inheritance in reckless living. And then, as it just so happened, there's a severe famine in the land. He finds himself in need. Uh, he can't go home, though, you know, because of Kazaza. So he does what he has to do. It's this trust fund kid goes to work as a, a pig herder. Totally disgraceful, disgusting. It's low. He knew he'd hit bottom when verse 16 says he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Not only is he working as a pig herder, shame one, in a Gentile country, shame two for a Gentile boss, there's another mark of shame. Now he's actually envying the pigs. 
Gosh, I wish I was eating as good as them. Could it get any worse? He's finally had it, and so in his mind he thinks, shame or no shame, I have to go home. I, I, I don't have any other alternatives. Verse 17 says, when he came to himself, and some translations say when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it's commonly assumed that this is his repentance. When it says he came to himself, it's easy to think, oh, he got his head on straight. He even has a humble confession planned for his father. Well, I don't think this is repentance yet, and and here's a few reasons why. Uh, First, there's a standard Greek word for repentance that Luke uses around 35 times. It's not used here. Repentance is not required by the words he came to himself. Second, it's his planned speech. At first glance, it seems very sincere, but we have to remember who it is that we're dealing with. This is the son who wished his father dead, left his family in shame to live recklessly, and is now back only because he's hungry. Consider the three parts of his speech, too, his confession. Uh, I am wrong. Good start. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm worthless. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And here's where it turns a little bit. Here is what I need you to do for me. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, the, the son still wants to call the shots. The phrase that seems most repentant, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, That would have sounded really familiar to the ears of the scribes and the Pharisees who knew the Hebrew scriptures. It's very similar to what Pharaoh said to Moses when he wanted Moses to lift the plagues off Egypt. From Exodus uh, 10, 16, I've sinned against the Lord and against you, he says. Pharaoh there was not repenting, he was manipulating, saying whatever he thought Moses needed to hear so he could get what he wanted. And in similar fashion, the prodigal who's hoping to soften his father's heart, he plans his own solution to the problem of their estrangement. And his answer is job training. He wants to acquire a skill. Uh, He wants to work. He wants to save money. Here he is starving, envying the pigs, while his father's hired servants have more than enough. And so his thought is, I'll earn back what I've lost in reckless living. I'll do it. Grace isn't necessary. I can manage this. I just need a job. Under the Rembrandt in your bulletin is a quote from Henry Nouwen in a a book titled The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he writes this. One of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. There's something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it even seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. While God wants to restore me to the full dignity of sonship, I keep insisting that I will settle for being a hired servant. As a hired servant, I can still keep my distance, still revolt, reject, strike, run away, or complain about my pay. See, he wants his father's help, but he doesn't want his father. Not yet, anyway. And the third and final reason I don't think the son has a repentant heart yet 
is the way that this whole chapter is structured. Chapter 15 is uh, just one parable. That's what it says in verse 3, but it has three stories. There's a story of, about sheep, a story about coins, and a story about sons. But it's just one parable. And that's important for our interpretation uh, because these stories parallel each other. They all hold together. And a pattern emerges as we read them from beginning to end. The first story, the shepherd must traverse the wilderness to find the lost sheep. The second story, the woman must diligently search her house to find the lost coin. So here's the pattern. Both the sheep and the coin are lost and must be rescued. If the prodigal in this third story manages to make his way home in the fullest sense of that word, if the emphasis is on his repentance, on his return as we often hear it is, then this third story is exactly the opposite from the, ter- the first two, the pattern. What do I mean? I mean the sheep didn't find its way home. The shepherd went out and found it. The coin didn't flip up on the table and say, here I am. The woman seeks it out and finds it. And here I'm going to argue that even though the prodigal is coming home and is at the edge of town, he's still prodigal. He's still lost until the father runs to him and rescues him. In the first story, we have a shepherd who seeks out a lost sheep, finds it, rejoices, and throws a party. In the second story, we have a woman who seeks out a lost coin, finds it, rejoices, and throws a party. The third and final story is about a father who seeks out a lost son, finds him, rejoices, and throws a party. For all these reasons I've just given, I don't think he's repentant yet. That's not what he has. But he does have something. He has a plan So verse 20 says, he arose and came to his father. And this is where the story gets really good. Ever since the son left town, the father has hoped for his return. He's watching that road. It says he saw him in the distance. How do you see someone in the distance unless you're regularly looking down that way for them to come home? He's waiting for his son. He's excited to have his son back. But while he longs for his boy to come home, he knows what's waiting for him if he does. The cutting off from the community. And the tension in this story is, how can the prodigal come home? How in the world can he come home? The father knows that there's one thing that can spare his son from his fate, but it's going to cost a lot. If the father can achieve reconciliation with his son in public, no one in the village will treat the prodigal badly. If the community witnesses the reconciliation, the the restoring of the relationship, then the cutting off won't take place. But for that to happen, there's going to have to be a sacrifice, and not an animal sacrifice, and not a sacrifice on the part of the, the shameful son. His actions hold no weight anymore. It's going to have to be a sacrifice of the father. So when the father finally sees his son at the edge of town, he sacrifices his own honor and does what no Middle Eastern man would do in public. He runs. Women and children would run, but no self-respecting person in that day, a person of his stature, especially one who'd been so deeply disgraced, would run to that returning son. This would be incredibly humiliating but he's willing to take it. He's willing to do this for his son. 
Remember, this is no ordinary father. Their return home would be one of shame. The son knew it. And the son fully expected that it would be his shame that was on center stage, not his father's. When the father runs to his, his child, when he does that in the community, he invites the, the shame of the whole community upon himself and he turns it away from his son. He shields his son from that shame. He sacrifices himself to rescue his son. This parable is sometimes called the gospel within the gospel, and it's not hard to see why, is it? One bearing the shame of another, one taking the place of another. It's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. On the cross, Jesus bore sin and shame for others, for you, for me. And we can't help but notice the tender heart of the father here. When he sees his son in the distance, uh, Luke says he felt compassion, not anger. When he got to him, his, his filthy son, again, that, that Rembrandt that you have in the bulletin, you see the condition he's in, the, one of his soles on his shoes is torn off. He looks terrible. When he has his, his filthy son before him, he doesn't say, I told you so. He embraces him. He kisses him. Not a side hug and a little peck on the cheek, but he kissed him and he kept kissing him. His affection's overflowing. His undeserved favor is, is lavished on his beloved son. Kenneth Bailey again, he says, as the father reaches the prodigal, he falls on his son's neck and kisses him before hearing his prepared speech. The father doesn't demonstrate costly love in response to his son's confession. Rather, his offer of grace is a prelude to the prodigal's remarks. The boy is totally surprised. He sees his father running the gauntlet for him. Overcome by emotion, he can only offer the first part of his speech, which now assumes new meaning. He declares that he has sinned and is unworthy to be called a son, but he omits the request for job training and servitude. And that makes it clear that he has no bright ideas for mending this relationship. In short, he's no longer working his father for additional advantages. The father doesn't interrupt his son. Instead, the prodigal changes his mind and in a moment of genuine repentance surrenders his plan to save himself and let his father find him. He comes finally to acceptance of being found. And I think that's a pretty good definition for repentance in this parable, the acceptance of being found. On this younger son's journey, we've seen uh, these three phases, these three stages, rebellion, and then as a result of that, exile, but that's not where the story ends, thank God. There's peace. Peace is finally achieved, and we see that in verses 22 to 24. Apparently, the servants followed the father out to meet the son. I guess when the boss runs, you run with him. He turns to his servants, and he says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. These are all symbols of sonship. Uh, the best robe, that's the father's very own robe. I wonder if that was the, the orangish robe the older brother is wearing, standing there, and they're going to take it off his back and give it to his dirty little brother. A ring, probably the family's signet ring, that represents the authority of the family. Shoes for his feet, 
Servants did not wear shoes. Sons wear shoes. And he tells them, do this quickly. As long as he's kissing his son, embracing him, the community's not going to interrupt, but they're right over here waiting. Their t-shirts, it's Kazaza time. (laughs) And so he says, hurry, go quickly. This mob must see that we're reconciled, that he's still my son, and my puckering old mouth is starting to get sore. Quickly, quickly, please. Just like rebellions followed by exile, here peace and reconciliation is followed by a celebration. This sinner has repented. He has accepted being found, and it's time to party. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. That's act one, and I promise act two is a lot shorter. So act two, the father and the older son. Uh, Like I said before, we often think the prodigal son, just one, but there's two prodigals that need saving in this story. The younger son, younger brother, he's the obvious sinner. Uh, Maybe as you hear about him, think about him, uh, you see yourself in him. Maybe your story has some parallels to his. But for every younger brother, there's an older brother. And they're not at all like the miserable, reckless, younger one. Here's what we learn about the older brother. He uh, comes in from the field, verse 25 says. Of course he does. Where else would a, a good son be but out in the field working for father? He's been working for his dad the whole time. He didn't run off. He didn't lose his inheritance. He's the good egg. He's the white sheep in the family. He's the kind of son other parents compare their own kids to and say, why can't you be more like them? When he comes in from the field, he hears music and dancing, and he asks one of the servants, what's going on? And he's told, your brother's home. The father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He's killed the fattened calf. He's received him back safe and sound. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? The father in this parable received this sinner and is eating with him. It's the same accusation which brought this about in the first place. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled against Jesus saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Jesus is simply doing what he sees the Father doing, receiving sinners and eating with them. And that is a major problem for older brother types. The older brother in this story who, who very clearly represents the Pharisees and scribes who are listening in. They have a choice to make. Will they, like the father in this story, like Jesus in his ministry, will they receive sinners and eat with them? Will they rejoice and enter into the celebration like the father in this story, like Jesus in his ministry? Or will they complain the music's too loud, the meal's too lavish, the party shouldn't be happening in the first place? The older son looks like a faithful, father-loving son especially compared to shoeless Joe kneeled before his dad. But verses 28 to 30 reveal what's really in his heart. And as much as he had a problem with his younger brother, it's his father that he really has contempt for. We can hear his his disdain through the interaction in verses 29 to 30, and it sounds like this. How could you be so gracious to this son of yours, this sinner? Let's see some true sorrow and godly repentance before we go forgiving anything. 
this sort of cheap grace dad is not helping anyone, make sure he really means it before you throw him a party. It's premature. The, the father, uh, father, all the, the party, the celebration, he's just going to run off again. He's just abusing your kindness. You're so naive, dad. He thought he knew better than his father. And because of his self-righteousness, he couldn't enter into the joy of the father. He couldn't enter into the joy of the angels in heaven over one sinner who accepts being found. He couldn't see the beauty of forgiveness and reconciliation, even among his own flesh and blood. That, that Rembrandt again, that, that older brother, he looks at the father, he's, he's gazing upon him with his younger brother there, but not with joy. He doesn't reach out, doesn't smile or express welcome. He sees in his father not a great lover, but a great fool. He simply stands there to the side, outside of the joy and reconciliation that's happening right in front of him. With the first son, we saw these three stages, rebellion, exile, peace. With this son, we see rebellion, though it comes out differently. He's angry with his father. We see exile, though geographically he's never left home. In his heart, he's far from him. As for peace, the jury is still out. Verse 31, the father says to this older brother, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And when the father says all that is mine is yours, it was literally true. When the inheritance was divided, the younger son got his portion. And at the same time, what was coming to the older son would have been given to him. Two-thirds of the estate, a third more than his younger brother. Yet he says to his father, you never gave me anything. The heart of a law keeper, a moralist, the older brother in us all, it does this. It fails to see what we have and only sees the unwarranted, cheap grace given to the less deserving. Oh, friends, God can lavish his grace on whomever he wants. He doesn't need to ask us what we think. This parable has no ending. We don't know what the older son decided to do, where it's kind of a cliffhanger. And Jesus is saying to his accusers, the self-righteous, both then and today, God is throwing a party. Will you celebrate with him? Jesus receives sinners' needs with them, all kinds of sinners. And whether you've been really bad or think you've been really good, it's never so bad that you're outside of God's grace, and you're never so good that you don't need God's grace. We all need a Savior, a God who runs to us to take our shame upon himself, to clothe us in his own robe of righteousness, to embrace us as his own, his beloved, to celebrate when we are found. And in Jesus, we have that Savior. Do you know him? Have you accepted being found by him? If you have, I would say rejoice and be sure to rejoice with all who have received his grace, not just the ones like you, not just the ones who have your story, your political beliefs, your parenting values, 
If God is their father and God is your father, then guess what? Your family. So rejoice. If not, if you've never accepted being found by him, then let this be the day of your return. The father is looking forward to your homecoming. So please accept being found. Let's pray. Lord, whether our tendency is to be like the older brother or like the younger, may we all be found in your embrace through faith in that perfect older brother, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.